0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The human papillomavirus vaccine is strongly recommended for both girls and boys between the ages of 11 and 12 to help prevent HPV-associated cancers. This is an
2: anti-cancer vaccine. If you want to protect your child from a virus they're almost certainly going to be exposed to and which runs a high risk of developing a cancer, this is a safe and effective vaccine.
3: Also on the program, we'll have an update on the Zika virus. We'll hear how obesity has been linked to increased risk of at least 13 types of cancer.
1: And we'll learn about improved surgical options for treating complex aortic aneurysms.
3: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after
0: this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that every year about 14 million Americans become infected with the human papillomavirus or HPV. And most of those that are infected are teenagers or young adults.
3: The CDC also reports that cancers caused by HPV are diagnosed in an estimated 18,000 women and 9,000
1: men each year. And a vaccine was actually introduced in 2006 to help prevent HPV-related cancers. But a decade later, the HPV vaccine continues to be the most underutilized childhood immunization, and especially so for boys here to discuss the HPV
3: vaccine is Mayo Clinic expert Dr. Gregory Poland. Welcome back to the program Dr. Poland.
1: Thank you Tracy
2: and Tom. Good to be here.
1: Greg, nice to have you. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel to hear you're you're moving up.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: We're happy to have you here, but especially to talk about this important topic, because the, the amount of HPV that is out there and the way that people think about it, it's an important thing to have a conversation about.
2: You're so right. Um, one of the problems that we've had, as Tom indicated, over a decade, and we're still in low double-digit immunization coverage levels, is the fact that this is a sexually transmitted disease. And what it transmits is not only the virus, but the virus that causes cancer. This virus causes over seven different cancers. The problem is, since we're giving it to young children, parents interpret this as, quote, a sexually transmitted disease, my child isn't going to get an STD, and there's no reason to get it. That's one major problem. The other major problem is the cost. It's a pretty expensive vaccine.
1: Mm. Now you said seven different cancers. The, yeah, the, the one, of course, we're all familiar with is cancer of the cervix, exactly. but in women. But what about what are the other ones, and what so, what does it cause in men?
2: Yeah, vaginal cancer, uh, other epithelial cancers, penile cancer, anal cancer, most of the oral pharyngeal cancer that's seen, so this is a big
1: issue. So cancer of the, of the tonsil and the throat, yes. oropharyngeal. Yes. Oh, my
2: gosh, really? Yes. And that you know that's the cancer part of it. The other side of it is the genital warts that this causes. And uh, we have a clinic here at Mayo Clinic, as I, I think all tertiary and quaternary care clinics have, where we have, unfortunately, young women whose throats are lined with thousands of these warts that literally occludes their breathing. And they have to go in with a laser and laser these off one at a time, and they will do so for the duration of these young girls' lives.
1: Really? Yes. So, uh, But do they ultimately, can it be cured ultimately? It can't,
2: it can't be cured, but they can try to keep it in check so that they can breathe.
1: The Oh, never heard of that. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that? And I had not haven't. heard of
3: that, no. So, I knew that you, you know what, I have to say the message that I have gotten, Uh, I used to be a young woman, was just that, oh, you know, everybody gets HPV, and that's just kind of the way that it goes.
2: So uh, that's not quite correct. Um, What I would say is um, everybody who has sexual exposure runs a strong risk of exposure to the HPV virus. The majority of women will resolve that infection with hopefully no sequelae, but some don't, and these are the ones that develop cancers. Um initial policy was that we would immunize young women, and it very quickly became apparent. Well, you know, the boys are (laughs) transmitting it and spreading it to the women and to other boys, Mm -hmm. and so we Mm -hmm. really needed a nationwide policy. I have these discussions all the time with parents and with with patients, and here's how I prefer prefer to position this. This is an anti-cancer vaccine. If you want to protect your child from a virus they're almost certainly going to be exposed to and which runs a high risk of developing a cancer, this is a safe and effective vaccine.
3: And so f- the fact that you have to give this vaccine before the person becomes sexually active, that's why 11- and 12-year-olds, it's hard for parents to wrap their heads around the fact that someday their beautiful little boy and girl yeah. are going to be in a sexual relationship.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that's, of course, not true for our children, but <laughs> other people.
1: <laughs> and That's, that's the, what they all And say. that's what the thinking is. <laughs>
2: and unfortunately, and it is a uh, a reflection of our culture, um, the average age age I don't like the term it's what the term that's used of sexual debut in girls is now down to 13 no and so this is a vaccine <laughs> that we start giving starting at age 9 and the interesting thing and I just I I plead with parents to listen to this the younger the child in that 9 to 13 year old age group the younger they are rather than waiting till they're in their 20s when they get the vaccine, the better the response. Mm. They are far better protected by getting the vaccine younger, even though they might not need that protection till they're a little bit older.
1: Usually, uh, you, you mentioned that that the, it's a little bit expensive. There's a social stigma out there. Parents don't want to think their kids are ever going to have a sexual encounter. Uh, but also, um, doesn't it require three doses?
2: You're, you're very right, Tom. And that's again a, something that's a little bit of an inhibitor to getting the the full series. It requires three doses over six months um, for. You know, with the Accountable Care Act and uh, Vaccines for Children Act, it is covered in young children, so that shouldn't be a factor that inhibits getting it. But uh, later this month, the Centers for Disease Control is, in fact, evaluating a potential change in policy where girls before the age of 15 might be able to get only two doses rather than three doses. Oh, well, that would be good, huh? It would be a great advance, I think, in improving immunization rates.
3: And for boys, too?
2: We don't know yet. Uh, more research needs to be done there, but I would hope so.
3: Well, um, mine just got his third dose yeah. last Wednesday, so let's keep that information under wraps.
2: That's right. <laughs>
3: I want to go back to... And it's
1: effective hundred percent effective as well far as you? you know
2: it's as close, it's, know. it's as close to a hundred percent as as you can get both for the prevention of cancer and the prevention of these genital warts and again for genital warts, there is no treatment there's only prevention uh
1: and it's a virus it's a virus yeah. yes, and so. it's a
2: virus that has multiple subtypes, so the first vaccine we had protected against two the next one was four. And the most recent vaccine protects Mm -hmm. against nine different types of that virus.
1: Well, it's sort of a, a, a interesting that you actually have a vaccine against a, a virus, particularly one that's so widespread. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the the age at which your children should get the vaccine, you mentioned that the average American female has her sexual debut. I thought that's a very uh, interesting way to put it. I at don't like it 13, at all. You don't yeah. like it? I have
3: okay. a 14-year-old. I don't like
1: it at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so you should get the vaccine. Your kids should get vaccinated between 9 and Well,
2: what we know is that between 9 and 15, boys and girls have the best immune response. They still respond well Hmm. between 15 and up to age 26. Hmm. After age 26, we're immunologically old in terms of this vaccine, and women don't respond very well to it. So we really want to get this vaccine and that protection, that immunity, as early as possible.
3: So the final message that you have for parents when it comes to whether or not their child should receive the HPV vaccine? I
2: think, number one, there is no evidence that getting this vaccine is going to increase promiscuity. That's been a fear. There is no evidence for that. Number two, this virus is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. They are going to get exposed to it in today's world. Number three, this is a safe and effective anti-cancer vaccine.
1: HPV vaccine with infectious disease specialist and immunization expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Time for a short break, but when when we come back, we're going to turn our attention to another hot topic, the Zika virus. That's the last
3: time you were here, we were talking about Zika. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking with immunization expert Dr. Greg Poland. So, Dr. Poland, we'll turn our attention now to another topic that's been in the news recently, the Zika virus. Mm. Now, Hurricane Matthew, it's come and it's gone, but standing water left behind has some along the East Coast worried about the possibility of more mosquitoes and i guess that would mean more cases of the zika virus.
2: Absolutely Tom, i'm concerned about that too. Public health authorities are concerned. We have warm temperatures down there. We've got lots of standing water. I just left Florida 2 days ago and there is water everywhere. Really? And this is going to be a prime breeding ground for these mosquitoes.
3: They have mosquitoes 365 days a year down there?
2: They do. Oh,
3: um, there's a benefit of living in <laughs> Minnesota. But
2: i'll tell you what, what we tend to think that way. But the southern to almost middle part of the state of Minnesota has the particular species of mosquito that can transmit this virus. So some 30 states in the union are at risk for this.
3: Now, the last time that you were here, it was before the Olympics. We were talking about um, Mayo Clinic working on a Zika vaccine. So first of all, let's talk about the Olympics. What was the... what ended up happening with Zika and the Olympics?
2: You know, it's a very hard thing to trace, but there, do, there does not seem to be widespread international spread of that virus as a result of the Olympics. Good. So that was a good thing. I think that control efforts seem to help there.
1: So tell us about this disease. If you get uh, bitten by a mosquito that's carrying the Zika virus, what happens and I guess there's no treatments, right?
2: You're very right. So what happens is a mosquito feeds on you and then injects the virus, regurgitates it literally into you. That virus multiplies. Eighty percent of the time, people have no symptoms or little in the way of any symptoms. Twenty percent of the time, they develop complications and symptoms. And the things that we're most concerned about are when pregnant women get infected, it can cause terrible congenital malformations, the microcephaly or small head, developmental delay, a host of other things in the unborn baby. And for older individuals that, that get infected, the risk of Guillain-Barre, a paralysis, that can occur as a result.
1: So, But otherwise, for most people, if they do get sick from the virus, it's like the flu? or Yeah, what is it's, that, it's, is it like? it's
2: pretty mild. Um, now, there are exceptions. There was a case out in Utah where a man died as a result of it, and we're not particularly sure why. He had extraordinarily high levels of virus in his blood. Again, we don't know why. That's not the typical picture that's seen clinically. But, and here's the big part, this virus has only been studied by modern, you know, medical and scientific methods since the end of last year. Mm -hmm. We know very little overall about this virus. And while we're studying it, the virus changes, has mutations, is learning to adapt to human populations. And worrisome for the U.S. is the fact that We are a virgin population in terms of this virus. We have no herd or population immunity to it, and this tends to increase the risk that the virus will multiply, mutate, change, and increase its ability to transmit from person to person.
3: Did the man in Utah get it because he went to the Olympics or because he was in Miami, or where did he catch it? He
2: had traveled, and even more surprising is some of his family who took care of him, for example, wiped his tears and you know kissed him on the cheek mm-hmm. and all got infected mm. too wow. wow so
1: you can definitively diagnose this yes. if someone is ill you can say yes for sure you have based yes. on a blood test yes so what do you tell a young woman who is pregnant and and gets the zika
2: virus so right now the recommendation is that if you're planning a family or you're pregnant to avoid any non essential travel to zika endemic areas And that now includes the south uh, part of Florida. Really? Um, And then if they have had any exposure, either from a male or from being in an area like that, we would test them. And there's a somewhat complicated algorithm by which we would test them.
3: One of the things I remember from our conversations last summer was that uh, that virus will live in a man longer than it does in a woman. So even if you come back from having traveled and you're not sick, you can have symptoms show up. Six weeks later?
2: We're now recommending that they delay initiating a family when they've been in an area like that for six months. Wow. See, the
1: male is so much more of a hospitable Mm. environment. Mm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So no treatment. We have no treatment for Zika virus. We have no ways of preventing it other than preventing the bite. The, only the female mosquito bites, so in the little back and forth we're having about mm-hmm. males and females, it's only the female <laughs> mosquito, and she bites predominantly during the day, unlike the mosquitoes we're predominantly used to, which are dusk and nighttime biters.
3: You know, I was thinking it's been two years since Mm -hmm. the Ebola Mm -hmm. freakout happened in this country. The risk of getting the Ebola virus was a lot greater. Am I reading that correctly? Well,
2: no. The risk of Ebola for somebody living here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and not traveling to those areas was essentially zero. Maybe a health care But people were
3: terrified. Yes.
2: But, you know, what we have now for a variety of reasons we can talk about is an increasing and alarming risk of mosquito-borne viral illnesses. So in Florida, Texas, for example, Zika virus, dengue virus a virus probably most of our listeners have never heard of called Chikungunya. Chicken Chikungunya. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, no, but you don't want it. You don't want it, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are we going to do about this? Well, there, there are a couple of things to do. I think the most important public health maneuver is that we get rid of standing water, we teach people about mosquito precautions. So that's one thing. The next most important thing is we need a vaccine. We need a vaccine, and we need an antiviral. Here at Mayo Clinic, we are working very hard on developing a vaccine. We're growing the virus in cells. We're learning how this virus acts. We're taking pieces of the virus, and we're packaging it with biodegradable nanoparticles with the intent of developing a safe and effective vaccine Where is your, your money c- coming from? Right now, right now we're doing this uh, sort of off our own backs and with some Mayo Clinic support. Well, we're uh, looking nice. to the NIH and the Department of Defense to get the kind of funding that you need to do this work right.
3: What if uh, these years that it's taking to develop this by the time you get there, it's already changed enough that it doesn't work?:
2: It can happen. I
3: mean, um, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, yeah, but <laughs> yeah
2: or well Debbie Downer, let me just make a comment on that. The, while it is changing, all of the clades or types of this virus to date are closely enough related that we think immunity to one will give you immunity okay. to all.
3: And how far are
2: we away from that Zika vaccine? I wish I, I wish I had a crystal ball, but once we know the vaccine works in animals, then you've got a prolonged period of testing in, in humans to be sure it's safe. This one's a little more difficult because our primary group that we're aiming it to are women who are pregnant or about to get pregnant. Uh So we really have to be very careful about the work to know that it's safe. It's going to be years.
3: You said it is relatively new in humans. Did it come from pigs? Did it come from monkeys? Where did it come from? The
2: ancestral virus is thought to have uh, developed about 1900 in monkeys in Uganda. Amazing Mm. you can trace it back Mm -hmm. like that. And it wasn't until uh, 1947 that rhesus monkey number 766 in a cage in a jungle in Uganda got infected with a virus. They were looking for yellow fever and realized this is something different. And amazingly enough, and Tom and others are familiar with a story like this, is some of those very brave researchers, in order to understand this virus, injected it into themselves. Oh. Amazing.
1: Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist, immunization expert at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, and Jacksonville. Thanks so much for the update on the Zika virus and best of luck in finding a vaccine. We hope you can do it.
2: If anybody can do it, Mayo Clinic can do it. Exactly.
1: Still
3: to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how obesity is linked to increased risk in certain cancers. And later on in the program, we'll learn more about a new stent being used to treat complex aortic aneurysms.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Preventive care, such as screening for cancer or regular blood pressure checks, is important for good health. But some people in the LGBTQ community don't get regular exams or reveal their sexual identities because they worry about how their health care providers might respond to them. Mayo Clinic's Dr. John Knudsen encourages LGBTQ people to be open and honest with their health care team.
2: On average, it takes patients five visits to their primary care physician or provider before they ever disclose the fact that they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or even transgender.
0: Dr. Knudsen says that's often because LGBTQ people may fear a negative reaction from their healthcare team.
2: Is this a safe place for me to disclose this about myself?
0: This fear results in missed opportunities to screen for health issues. Fear also keeps LGBTQ people from seeking preventive care. For example, lesbians and transgender people, people are less likely to get mammograms and pap smears.
2: This is protected health information, so confidentiality is assured.
0: The care you need and deserve. And in other news, let's talk about irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. If you have it, you might have diarrhea, constipation, or both. From eating fiber-filled foods to exercising more, making some simple changes can help ease IBS. Although your body may not respond immediately to these changes, your goal is to find long-term, not temporary solutions. So experiment with fiber. When you have IBS, fiber can be a mixed blessing. Although it helps reduce constipation, it can also make gas and cramping worse. The best approach is to slowly increase the amount of fiber in your diet over a period of weeks. Examples of foods that contain fiber are whole grains, fruits and veggies, and beans. If your signs and symptoms remain the same or worse, tell your doctor. Some people do better limiting dietary fiber and instead taking a fiber supplement that causes less gas and bloating. If you take a fiber supplement, introduce it slowly and drink plenty of water every day to reduce gas, bloating, and constipation. If you have or think you may have irritable bowel syndrome, talk to your health care provider. For the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, a World Health Organization review of more than 1,000 studies has found solid evidence that being overweight or obese does increase your risk for at least now 13 types of cancer. Strong evidence was already out there to link five cancers to being overweight or obese. And those cancers, some of them were cancer of the colon and rectum, the kidney, and breast cancer in postmenopausal women.
3: This new review, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, links an additional eight cancers to excess fat. Among them, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, and multiple myeloma. Here to discuss obesity and cancer risk is Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moynihan. It's good to see you.
4: Oh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Thanks, Dr. Moynihan. So this is pretty, it's intriguing, but it's also concerning, particularly knowing that two-thirds of American adults are either obese or overweight.
4: Absolutely. It's a major public health problem, and it shows we may have new problems down the road as we see the obesity rates increase in our, in our country, and as we see more and more people uh, age, which we know is one of the factors for cancer, but this certainly seems to be contributing to more cancers. So I think we may see in the next 10 to 20 years an explosion of these additional cancers.
3: Why does excess weight or why does being fat contribute to cancer in general?
4: That, that's a great question, and that we haven't completely worked that out. Uh, But there are many different theories out there that make a lot of sense. One is that many of these cancers, particularly breast, uterine, possibly kidney, ovarian meningioma, may be associated with abnormal or imbalanced hormone levels in the body. And we do know that fat cells play a major role in imbalancing hormone levels within the body. For example, excess obesity leads to increased estrogen levels in the body, uh, and that may play a role in breast cancer and meningi- meningiomas. Uh, other hormone levels may also be adversely affected. However, in addition, several of these uh, cancers may be associated with what's called inflammatory markers. We don't know why, but we certainly know that those people who are obese, we can measure inflammatory markers within their system, and these are significantly elevated. For example, we do also know that this affects other parts of the body, not just cancer. We know that people who are obese, have more arthritis in various areas, including non-weight-bearing joints. Hmm. Interesting. So it's not just the weight that leads so, uh, to arthritis in some of those areas. It's probably inflammation in the body that may lead to their arthritis. In a similar fashion, it may lead to several, several of these cancers. Lastly, things like adenocarcinoma of the esophagus may be related to the weight itself because it looks like if you are obese, you have a much higher likelihood of having A reflux of acid from your stomach up into your esophagus. If that happens over a long period of time, that causes inflammation of the esophagus and can lead to esophageal cancer if it goes on for too long a period of time.
1: I'm sure that if they Mm. reviewed a 1,000 studies, they're pretty sure about this. And you're pretty sure about this?
4: Certainly, the epidemiologic data certainly strongly suggests this. This doesn't, again, explain the mechanism for it, but there's clearly a correlation between these two things. Now, correlation is not causation. Uh, But certainly uh, there's very strong evidence that that this is a risk factor. That does not mean that everybody who's obese will get any of these, but it's certainly they have a higher chance of getting it than if they were not obese.
1: Do we know how fat is too fat?
4: Absolutely. So the more overweight you are, the higher your risk. So there is a linear causation between those, uh, a correlation with that. So there's no discrete cutoff of one particular weight is healthy, one particular weight is, is too much. It's, it's a linear relationship between hmm, a healthy okay. and normal weight. The higher and higher you get in your weight, uh, the more likely you are to have one of these problems. So then you can't tell us how much weight should we lose to be <laughs> healthier? Um, we know that if you are overweight or have an elevated body mass index, to bring that down certainly helps. And it helps other things too. It helps diabetes control. It helps uh, decrease cardiovascular risk mortality. It may help things like arthritis. May make you just feel more more mobile, so you can do more exercise, so you can feel better, feel fitter. So t-
1: tell us about <clears> the, <throat> the the five that we knew about. Which ones are those? We, we mentioned them briefly, but.
4: Carcinoma of the esophagus, colon cancer. Uh, breast cancer in postmenopausal women doesn't seem to apply to premenopausal women but does for postmenopausal. So
1: when you reach menopause you got to get the weight off. That's you what get you're the weight saying. Off. And of course uh, the app opposite is usually true it's it's more difficult to stay Absolutely. slim at menopause.
4: Absolutely. Wow. Menopause uh, leads to hormonal changes that certainly increase your difficulty losing weight and it hmm. may increase your gain of weight too. If you can come into menopause though in better condition you are less likely to have as much weight gain. Okay, if you can say more active. The other two that we haven't mentioned are the uterine cancer and kidney cancer. Those are clearly associated, and we've known that for a long time, are associated with obesity.
3: Okay, so you knew already that those five were related to obesity. How do you figure out that this whole new list of them is also part of it? How, how can you tell that a cancer is affected by obesity?
4: Right. What we look for is look at the rates of these cancers and how many of those people are obese and what's the incidence of the cancer in people who have a normal weight, who are underweight, or who are overweight. And what we see is that in those people who are significantly overweight, they have a higher chance or a higher number of these cancers per 100,000 people.
1: All right. And the new ones on the list?
4: The new ones include stomach cancer, liver cancer, which again may be related to hormones, gallbladder cancer, pancreas cancer, cancer of the thyroid, ovarian cancer, meningioma, which is a type of brain tumor for the covering of the layers that cover the brain, and then lastly, multiple myeloma or a blood disorder.
1: You know, I thought it was interesting that meningioma is on that list Mm -hmm. because that's a benign condition, isn't it, and most of the time curable with uh, surgery?
4: The vast majority of, uh, of meningiomas, yes, are very benign, and they're actually fairly common, and we see these fairly frequently. The problem with meningiomas are twofold. Number one, the location. Because if it happens to be in a bad place in the brain, even if it's a benign lesion, can still cause significant problems for you. Secondly, we do know a few of the meningiomas are bad actors, and there are what are called malignant meningiomas that do not behave as the benign meningiomas, which are the vast majority of them, and they can cause problems. But what we also know about meningiomas, they are clearly related to various hormone levels, particularly estrogen, and, hmm. and they are also related to things like long-term estrogen replacement in the postmenopausal woman or women who took high-dose estrogen for birth control. You know, it, it's sort of
1: interesting to me that the, there are not too many cancers that aren't on this list. Would it be fair to say that uh, obesity in general or being overweight in general increases your risk for virtually any kind of cancer? Uh,
4: th- there are a lot of different cancers, and depends on how you decide to count them. Uh, most people consider 120, 127 different types of cancers. So, um, oh, we got a ways to go. We then. have a ways yeah, to go. Mean. Uh, Again, we don't understand the mechanism that causes this, but, again, is this general inflammation causing it? Because we certainly know that people who have chronic inflammatory states have higher risks of lots of different cancers, even if they're not overweight. But, again, the obesity may lead to excess inflammation within the body. So there's too many on the list already. Absolutely.
3: It's interesting that here in the 21st century, when we're starting to get into the genetics of the patient Mm -hmm. and we can look at your genome, That one of the things that is happening is, well, we're figuring out, you know what, you should be losing weight. Mm -hmm. It's it's not focusing on for better health, it's not focusing on what your genome is, it's focusing on quit smoking and start losing weight. Right.
4: Well, there's a couple different factors there. Is is that one, the genome that you're born with, or the genes that you're born with, to the best of our knowledge right now, only uh, account for 5 or 10% of cancers. The vast majority of cancers are probably from other causes, and we also know that cancer is caused by abnormalities within the genes within those cancer cells. Mm -hmm. But those are not genes that you're born with. These are genes that get damaged somehow, possibly through inflammation, through cigarette smoke, through viruses, through other reasons that then uh, become cancers. So these are acquired cancers, and that makes up... Uh, probably 90 to 95% of the cancers that we see.
1: All right. Well, there's lots of reasons to lose weight. We know that, but here's one more. One more. Because it'll reduce your incidence of these cancers that we've talked about. Dr. Timothy Moynihan, medical oncologist, cancer expert at the Mayo Clinic.
4: Thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back,
3: our colleague Dennis Dota joins me as co-host as we discuss a new type of stent to be used to treat complex aortic aneurysms.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo
5: Clinic news network welcome back to mayo clinic radio I'm Dennis Doda and
3: I'm Tracy McRae
5: you know around the world 175,000 deaths are attributed to aortic aneurysms each year the aorta which you might already know is the largest blood vessel in the body it carries blood directly from your heart and a variety of factors may cause the aorta to dilate like an overstretched balloon and if it should burst this is not good Right? It's possible that a person could bleed to death internally in just a matter of minutes.
3: And because aneurysms may be present without a single symptom, most are discovered incidentally while doctors are treating other conditions. Aortic aneurysms can be repaired using stents, but in the more complex cases, kidney and intestinal arteries are involved in the procedure. A stent allowing branches to reach into those arteries is being tested right here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester.
5: And we're very fortunate today because here to discuss this clinical trial is Mayo Clinic vascular and endovascular surgeon Dr. Gustavo Odorich, and we want to welcome you to the program, Dr. Oderich. Thanks for having me, Trish.
3: So what causes an aortic aneurysm?
6: The most common aneurysms we see are degenerative aneurysms. There is a component of family history, uh, and there are risk factors. Some of them are acquired. The biggest one is cigarette smoking. It's more common in men. Uh, these patients often have several cardiovascular risk factors that we call, such as you know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Uh, previous uh, history of coronary disease. And then there are some aneurysms that are purely genetic. Uh, they are less frequent, and some can be infected or inflammatory. And
5: sometimes there
6: are no symptoms whatsoever.
5: Uh, so what kind of indications might one have that they need to be treated or checked out for this?
6: So, yes, and the majority of aneurysms, they are detected incidentally. They are asymptomatic, and they are detected because patients have an ultrasound or a CT scan to investigate other symptoms. Now, sometimes they can cause abdominal pain, back pain. They can actually send clot down to the legs, you know, embolization. Once you have an aneurysm, the main factor that indicates repair is the size. So in man, the size we start to get concerned is... 5.5 centimeters which turns out to be about two and a half inches and in women it's five centimeters sometimes it's the shape of the aneurysm for example if you have an aneurysm that's like an outpouching like a little sac a saccular aneurysm those are more concerning or if they are growing too fast
3: so how do you repair them
6: how do you fix an aneurysm There are two ways to treat an aneurysm, Tracy. The time-honored is open surgery that has been done almost the same way for the last 50 years. It involves an incision in the belly, typically up and down. We have to stop the blood supply to the aorta. And then we replace the area that's large with a polyester graft that is hand-sewn to the aorta. The other alternative, which nowadays the majority of aneurysms are treated with stents, That is what we call endovascular treatment that is done with little punctures in the groin. And the stent, in essence, is a a device that has a fabric, either polyester or Gore-Tex, and it has a a metallic cage that springs open inside the, the vessel.
3: Is it a benefit to using stent like that over the surgical?
6: There are several benefits. This has been very well studied. It stands, in essence, they decrease the risk of death from the operation. They decrease the risk of complications from the operation. The hospital stay is shorter. The recovery time is faster. Uh, they do need surveillance. You, know, you have to check on them every so often. And there is an associate risk that they need to have be revised in the future. Most of those revisions are done under local anesthetic.
5: How common is it for the aneurysm to extend into branching arteries that feed other vital organs of the body?
6: That's less common. About 20 to 30% of the aneurysms we see then are what we call complex aneurysms. They are involving side branches of the aorta. In a center like Mayo, this is actually increasing because the community refers those patients that are not straightforward. They have complex aneurysms.
3: I'm not quite sure that I understand how this new thing that's being done at Mayo Clinic is different than what was previously done. So first of all, tell us about the 3D printer version of a stent.
6: So most of the stents that are available that are used widely in this country and you know in the world, they are simpler stents for simpler aneurysms below the kidney or aneurysms in the chest that do not involve side branches. Once and as side branches, it creates a big challenge because you have to keep blood supply to a kidney, to a liver, to the intestine. So that requires a special stent.
3: And So how is the 3D printer version different?
6: So the 3D printer we've been using to rehearse, to plan procedures, to help design stents. Uh, the stent itself is not 3D printed, uh. okay? But we do print the anatomy of the patient, to rehearse the operation ahead of time sometimes we do that also to teach physicians and teach residents in training or when the operation has never been done some of these stents were like the very first in human implant so this is the very same 3d printed aorta that you're likely
5: that you are going to find in the patient that you're treating so then you practice that
6: briefly or, or through the whole procedure in advance? So this is an exact replica of the anatomy of the patient. So we can rehearse every step of the procedure and we can anticipate difficulties. For example, sometimes it's difficult to get to the right kidney. The anatomy is a particular way that may affect selection of a particular catheter or approach. Other times we find you know, the stent is not ideal for that anatomy. It just doesn't sit well on that particular curve, et cetera, so we can actually change the choice of these stents sometimes.
3: We're running out of time, but do you have a patient story that you can share with us of how this has helped someone?
6: Yes, we have a patient that actually uh, we had the opportunity to use one of these complex stents and also to do the 3D print model to rehearse. Uh, this was a patient that was treated in December of last year with an aneurysm involving the kidney arteries, We had the chance to do the first implant in the United States of this particular stent, and we used the anatomy of the patient, actually, to rehearse ahead of time. And how did he do? He did very well. He did require a revision of one of the kidney stents after a couple of months, but recovered, and now he continues to do very well.
3: So is this the future of uh, repairing aortic aneurysms?
6: I think it's the present already, huh. and uh, I certainly think is is going to be the future in, in 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 most centers.
5: one last note, you at Mayo Clinic are conducting for the fDA early feasibility studies and and that's done in very few places. Very few seem to be trusted enough to actually work on the research but also utilize them within patients as well
6: Yes then is. Early feasibility is a new pathway for the FDA to allow centers to have early access to technology. And, yes, they do highly select the centers, the physicians they have that access, and it's very monitored by the FDA.
3: Dr. Gustavo Odereck, Mayo Clinic vascular and endovascular surgeon, thanks so much for joining us to discuss aortic aneurysms and this exciting new surgical advances tested here at Mayo Clinic.
6: Thanks for having
1: me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
3: Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or email us at MayoClinicRadio at
1: Mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.